welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. We have to jump back in the time machine today to 1995. Bill Clinton was president. O.J. Simpson had just beat a double murder rap in California. And the Ted Williams Tunnel opened for the first time in Boston, Massachusetts. That was the state of the news in 1995. But in March, the news locally would take a turn for the worst. Deanna Kremen of Somerville, Massachusetts would disappear. And I guess I should start by telling you a little bit about Somerville first. And then I'll get into the Kremen family. Somerville today is viewed as kind of a hip alternative to Boston, Massachusetts, which is just across the river from Somerville. Somerville abuts Boston. It's also neighbors Cambridge, Massachusetts. Today, it's relatively affluent, but back when the Kremen family started to settle there in the late 60s, 70s, it was kind of a hard scrabble town, a workaday town. Today, it's not viewed that way. It's pretty much been fully gentrified and is seen oftentimes as a section of Cambridge. They have similar politics and all that. But when the Kremens first moved in, it was a largely Irish community, and the Kremen family moved into Winter Hill. Winter Hill is a section of Somerville that is infamous for the Winter Hill Gang, run by the original capo, Howie Winter, and then later by James Whitey Bulger. And this was the alternative to the Italian mob. This was the Irish mob, basically. And it was run mostly out of Somerville and South Boston, Massachusetts. What I'm trying to portray is Somerville at that time was a gritty city. Today, not so much. A little more affluent. But when the Kremens arrived there, it was kind of a hard gambling, hard drinking Irish town. And the Kremen family consisted of mom, Catherine Kremen. Dad was Michael. There was a sister, Christine, and two brothers, Albert and Mark. Deanna Kremen fits somewhere in the middle there. And in 1995, she had just turned 17 years old. She was a typical kid. She played hooky a little bit, had some beer at the park, but was simply good-hearted. She had a ton of friends. All of her friends say she was just this almost comedian-level funny. So what I get from reading all these news accounts is she was just kind of a happy-go-lucky, almost stereotypical Somerville girl. So the past year, 1995, was a year of first for Deanna. She got her driver's license. She got her first job working at Star Market in Somerville. And what I get from this as well is she's just like every kid, every kid you've grown up with, every kid in your family, just stereotypical, really. So I guess we'll fast forward to March 29th, 1995, and Deanna 
had actually seen her mother that day on the bus. Deanna was going over her boyfriend's house. She had been dating this guy for about a year and a half at this point. And she usually went over his house after school to do homework and stuff like that. And then she'd be home by 10 o'clock. I believe 10 p.m. was her curfew. Her mother had just purchased her a pager for her 17th birthday that had recently passed. And I'm talking with about just in a few days. So Deanna and her mom had crossed paths on the bus. And they spoke briefly because I don't think uh, Deanna had a very long trip. But they said, I love you and I'll see you later. And mom again confirmed curfew time. And mom goes off to work and Deanna goes to the boyfriend's house. And when mom gets home later... It gets to be like midnight and she can't get a hold of Deanna and mom decides to go to bed thinking that the kid just fell asleep. So first thing in the morning, Mrs. Kremen, Catherine Kremen, uses the pager, can't get through, can't get through, and then just calls the house and she speaks to the boyfriend and his name is Tommy LeBlanc. So Tommy says that the previous night he had dropped her off. He usually walked her all the way home made sure she got in the door, and he called her back when he got home. So that was like their nightly ritual, especially during the week with school and all that. But on this night, Tommy says, I only walked her halfway home. And at that point, there's like a senior citizen housing or nursing home. I don't know what it actually is, but that was about the halfway point. I believe it was near Heath Street and Bond Street. So Catherine begins to panic a little bit. This is not like Deanna. And to be quite frank, it wasn't like her boyfriend either to vary from that routine they had all set up. So she's pissed off, but she thinks there's some other explanation. And they start looking for Deanna right away. And pretty soon they call the police and all this, but the panic starts to set in. That crazy panic when you don't know where your kid is went through the whole family. So I'm sure they got from the Somerville police that she's a 17-year-old girl and she hasn't been missing that long. Everything's going to be fine. This happens all the time. But the entire Kremen family had this dread, as any family would. And they began looking for Deanna and they went around the area. They went and they talked to the boyfriend again. He seemed solid at that point, right? But she's just missing. She's just missing at this point. And Everybody's panicked. So as time passes on March 29th and the sun begins to come up on the next day, everybody's still in shock here, but the news would actually get worse. Guys, one of the things I think I neglected to tell you about Deanna is she was a prolific babysitter. She was Winter Hills babysitter. A lot of people actually knew the Kremen family because of Deanna's babysitting. Kids, for whatever reason, were drawn to her. And people had speculated that that would be her calling in life, nursery school teacher, elementary school teacher, something to do with children. So now it's March 30th, and these two kids are taking a shortcut to school, and they cut through the senior housing complex building, and they were going to continue on to school at that point. But they discovered a body, young female, you know, strawberry blonde hair laying on her back, partially clothed, kids freak out. They ended up getting an adult and the Somerville police get there pretty quickly. But as it turns out that those two kids, their favorite babysitter, each of them was Deanna Kremen. And that's who was on the ground in front of them. 
So the morning progresses and the police start their investigation. They get a hold of Michael Kremen and eventually he gets a hold of Kathy and he tells Kathy to come home. And I believe some of the conversation went like this, Kathy, you got to get home right now. And she couldn't at the time. And he says, why? And Michael ends up saying, you know why? And it was at that point, the Kremen family would never be the same again. Everybody lost in this equation especially Deanna, but the family suffered. And like I had just stated previously, they'll never be the same again. So in terms of the police investigation, there appears to have been some confusion at the outset on identification of Deanna, but Michael ended up making the identification, I believe, at the morgue or at the hospital and naturally tells his family. But the police ramp up their investigation and their first stop is the last person known to have been with her and that was Tommy LeBlanc. And they get to Tommy and they say, yeah, we walked halfway home. I don't know if he mentioned if there was a fight between them or not, because it was odd that Tommy didn't walk Tiana all the way to the door. And their usual routine was he dropped her off the door and he called the house when he got home. You know, it's only about a mile or so, I guess, between homes or whatever. But that was their routine. It's not known to me what actually Tommy said. Why did he stop walking her? It's kind of an urban area. And if it was my daughter, I would have wanted her walked all the way home. But kids do stupid things. I don't know if he ever provided an explanation to the police on why this specific day he only walked her halfway home. So Tommy LeBlanc says he leaves her by the senior housing complex there. And the next day, she's found by those school kids she had babysit for. And it was actually about 475 feet from where Tommy had left her. So in that intervening period, or Tommy would like you to believe, in that intervening period, 400 and some odd feet, which would probably take, you know, 30 seconds to walk, somebody abducted her, killed her, and dumped her body right there. They dragged it down behind the building. There was like a trash area there. The police never stated that if that was the initial crime scene or if she was dragged from just out in the visible area to a non-visible area where the trash was and all this. One of the problems in this case from the public perspective is there's no real information. There's not a lot of case information available. I've been researching this case and it's pretty well covered, but it's all the same stuff. You know, when a, a story's so old, you'll grab a nugget here and there. You know, this was the original crime scene. She was dragged somewhere else. But in the Kremen case, there's not a hell of a lot to go on. I don't know if it's a lack of reporting on the case or just they were so tight-lipped, the police on it, but there's not much in the public domain about this. So I can imagine what the police are thinking about this kid LeBlanc, right? He drops her off at the senior housing complex halfway to the house, and in the next 450 feet, she's gone. She's left this earth. That would have to happen pretty quickly, I think. So I guess Tommy wants people to think he turned his back and went the other way. So in my opinion, this is a shaky story from Jump Street. So Tommy LeBlanc and Deanna had been dating for about a year and a half or so, and they had met at Deanna's workplace, Star Market in Somerville. And it started out like most things do as a friendship, and then they became boyfriend and girlfriend. But a lot of Deanna's friends didn't seem too fond of Tommy LeBlanc. They described him 
variously as aloof, quiet. Some say he was a stick in the mud. And that was the exact opposite of Deanna Kremen's personality. She was bubbly, effervescent. She met people wherever she went, both guys and girls. People were just drawn to her. So Tommy's behavior in the days after the murder was kind of strange. The family said he kind of stood out as not being overly emotional. And quite frankly, I think he became a suspect right after the murder. I mean, Deanna's found, you know, 475 feet from where he left her. What's the likelihood of that happening? It could happen. Somebody else could have been involved. But in that short time frame, and I know I don't have all the facts, and it's merely speculation at this point, but I'm thinking that the family thought there's something wrong with Tommy in this case. And it would come out later that Tommy, in fact, did have scratches on his neck and his cheek. That combined with his behavior in the days after the murder kind of cemented it, I believe, for the family. But they're open to any other possibilities. They were just shell-shocked, really. And Tommy was a massive question mark in all of this. It would later come out that the police had some forensic evidence. And don't forget, it's 1995 at the time. And DNA was just coming to fruition. And that was the lowest level of DNA. It's like eons from where we are right now. But Tommy had a scratch on him. And there was human debris under Deanna's nails. And there was DNA on her body or in her body. And she had been found one leg in her jeans and one leg out. So there was definitely a sexual element to this case. Or at least maybe the killer wanted you to think there was a sexual element to the case. So I think it's safe to say that Tommy was a suspect in this homicide, whether the police said so out loud or not. But there was another suspect in the murder of Deanna Kremen. This individual was described as a fireman, an older fireman who was known to the Kremen family. And he did have some interaction with Deanna. I believe it was around her issues around her getting her driver's license and all this. I don't know if the police quickly ruled him in this case or out of it, but he kind of dropped off the radar in terms of press coverage pretty quickly. There was a third suspect in this, and I don't know his name. It was never really published. He was basically a, a local sex fiend, and he had been suspected in other sexual assault and batteries in the area, and the cops kind of thought this could be him just upping his game a little bit. But quite frankly, I don't think they could get away from Tommy's crappy story of just tonight I didn't walk her all the way home, and she's found 450 feet from where I left her. So there's three suspects. It would later come to light that the police do have DNA. They do have scrapings from her fingernails, Deanna's fingernails and all that. And there's some other forensic evidence to go with it. But don't forget, one of the suspects is the boyfriend. His DNA would be on her regardless. And if they're at an age where they're intimate, DNA in that sphere can be explained away pretty easily. So I think if there was DNA or other forensic evidence matching the other two suspects, the Somerville fireman or this local sex fiend, they would have been in handcuffs pretty quickly. So I don't know if that points the finger in one direction or not. So about 24 hours after Deanna's body was found, that's when the press coverage really intensified. And for the longest time, it was in the headlines of the Boston Herald, the Boston Globe, 
But again, no facts were really released, and I think the police thought this was going to be wrapped up pretty quickly. I've heard rumors and some sources have told me directly that this case did in fact go to a grand jury, and two of the material witnesses in the case took the fifth, they pled the fifth, they did not want to incriminate themselves or potentially incriminate themselves. I don't know the time frame of this grand jury or if there was only one or there was multiple, but there was never an indictment in this case. There's never been an arrest in this case, and it's just shameful. About a decade ago, Martha Coakley was the attorney general, and she was running either for governor or running for attorney general again and said that somehow an arrest was imminent or some information was going to be forthcoming almost immediately and that never came to fruition. At that point, it threw the Kremen family for an absolute loop. They had been waiting for this throughout all of these years. This happened in 1995. And what I'm talking about was about a decade ago. And every so often they come up with, there's been some advances in DNA. There's been some advances in forensics in general. And that gets the Kremen family's hopes up. And they just come crashing down time and time again. It's so literally unfair. One thing the police have done well in this case, I guess, is keep a lid on the information. But I don't know if that does so very well in these cold cases. In other cases, and at least, you know, the Teresa Corley in Bellingham, Molly Bish in Western Massachusetts, the police will kind of give you a little bit of a timeline as to what they think happened. In this case, no information is really forthcoming, either from the Somerville Police or the District Attorney's Office, and I believe that's Middlesex County. There's no information coming out of the Middlesex County District Attorney's Office on this case. Nothing new anyway. So it's now been about 26 years since Deanna was murdered, and we're about where we were a decade ago. It's kind of stalled here, and during the interim, some sources I've spoke to say Tommy LeBlanc is still kind of avoiding the Kremen family in a lot of these questions. Keep in mind that two material witnesses at the grand jury took the Fifth Amendment in order not to incriminate themselves. And I believe one of those, at least one of them, was Tommy's alibi witness that stated where Tommy was after the time that he dropped Deanna off. That's speculation at that point, but I've heard that from multiple sources. Also, in the few years after the murder of Deanna, Tommy LeBlanc had a restraining order filed against him by his mother, who stated that he was dark and moody and violent at the house. You know, if, is that attributed to what had happened to Deanna, how he felt about it, or was there some lingering guilt? I don't know. It's all up in the air. But there was definitely a restraining order filed against him by his mother. After the homicide, people had approached Catherine Kremen and told her that they believed that her boyfriend, Tommy LeBlanc, was, I'll just say it, he was absolutely controlling and at times violent with her. This shocked Kathy Kremen because whenever he was at their house, he was like a leave it to beaver. Yes, Mrs. Kremen, no, Mrs. Kremen, that type of deal. But... Other people had described him as controlling and violent, and they were within their circle. And don't forget, Deanna's girlfriends never really liked him, you know? And does that mean he was responsible for a murder? No, it doesn't. But it gives you a 
decent perspective of Mr. LeBlanc, I believe, saying he's aloof, reserved, and now that's going even further to abusive and controlling. So combine that with the fact that on the one night you don't walk your 17-year-old girlfriend to her door, she ends up murdered 450 feet away from where you left her, and you have some scratches on you. I think he's got a lot of explaining to do. So the murder had what you would think is the normal effect on the Kremen family. It just devastated them. It's been said that it killed Michael, and everybody suffered somewhat in this. Michael and Kathy ended up divorced shortly thereafter. Their marriage was irretrievably broken when this happened. It's like a bomb going off in your house. Deanna's two little brothers suffered with it, one of which was sort of pretending it never happened. That's a normal reaction to a situation like this by a kid. Her sister, Christine, really suffered from this, and she ended up passing away prematurely as well. Michael, it was said that he just never recovered, and Kathy, for her part, has struggled on and off with this for almost a lifetime now. No family should have to go through this. Life is hard enough as it is. And dropping a bomb in the middle of it just really affected everybody in the Kremen family. Kathy's really pretty heroic in this story. She's never given up the fight. Despite her own battles, she's always fought, and I think she always will. So if you see Kathy Kremen out there, tell her she's done a good job, all right? Guys, I wish I had more for you on this case. The police are super tight-lipped about this one. There is forensic evidence. There is DNA. It just seems we're stalled. And with all the advances in DNA, familial DNA, I think this case is going to break, but it's going to hinge on the forensic evidence because the people involved obviously don't have a conscience. One guy, the material witness to what happened after the homicide or the time after the homicide, he has to take the fifth. I think that speaks volumes. I'm ramping up a part two in this case. I know there wasn't a hell of a lot of information here. I'm trying to lay the groundwork for you. I'm working on some things, and I'm hoping this following week I'll have an interview for you all set up, and it'll explain some of the questions that plague this case. And this is a case with a host of questions, and a lot of them focus on the police and what they've done since. I don't have any direct criticisms, but I just see the result. It's been 26 years and there's been no arrest. So that's the result everybody's looking at. I'm sure the police don't feel good about it either. There's some dedicated police on Somerville, and I think they're trying their best. I, I hope something comes of this soon. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you there, and I'll be back the following week with some more information on this case. I think you'll be a little happier with next week's episode. All right, guys, I'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>